You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. This is what the Word of God says, Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him to set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to, to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down to pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you trespass or transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman uh, saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury, and he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the 12th year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month till the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, there's a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, if it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month. And an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to, to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to, to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day. In one day. Keep that in mind. The 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Amen. I know that was a mouthful, but let me just pray for uh, over our hearts. Father, we thank you for the book of Esther. I thank you, Lord God, for what you um, are showing us, uh, for Lord God, for what you are doing in our hearts going through this book. It is part of uh, your word, the Bible, Father, and I know that you have been doing already so much in our hearts, bearing fruit. I just pray that you would do the same today. 
And Father, we thank you that today we're celebrating um, a baptism. We're celebrating, Lord God, just the baptisms of Garrett. And I thank you so much for him, Father. I thank you that he's, he's declaring publicly his faith, Lord God, to you. And I, and I thank you for him and his family, Father. Um, Lord God, I pray over all of our guests here this morning that you would uh, reveal yourself to them if they don't know you as their personal Lord and Savior. And I pray all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated, church. So we're taking 10 weeks to go through the book of Esther, 10 weeks, 10 chapters. We're in chapter three. Just so you know where we're headed today, I want to make, and I want to talk about four big ideas. They have some sub points, but four main big ideas. And the first one uh, is this, sins, mistakes, and tragedies. My heart really breaks this morning and, and, and it has been the whole week as I'm sure yours um, breaks as well. Uh, as I have watched some of the events transpiring and happening in Israel, in Gaza, um, in that part of the world, with that sort of resounding with the, the rest of the world, thousands now of people being killed, uh, women being raped and murdered in cold blood, and, and also this one hits at a different level now that I'm a father, uh, but even many kids, hundreds that were killed and massacred, even babies burned alive. Um, and I have come to one conclusion, and it's the only conclusion that is biblical and true. What we see is the depravity of men on full display. It's fitting that on a Sunday like today, uh, I may not have too many jokes in my sermon today, so I apologize for that. Um, but it's fitting that on a Sunday like today, when the world is in even more chaos than it was a week ago, it's fitting to talk about chapter 3 of Esther through one particular lens that our lives here on earth are marked by three things, sins, mistakes, and tragedies. These three things, they complicate our life, don't they? These three things are the reason for what's going on in Israel now and in Gaza and the rest of the world. They complicate our life to the point of discouragement and despair, and hopelessness, and complete and utter chaos. What do I mean by sins? Well, meaning the sins that we commit ultimately against God. And, and, and we do it a lot of times by sinning against our neighbors. And the sins that they commit against us, or perhaps even sins that someone commits that aren't against us, but they affect us. They affect us. And as you know, sins, all sins have a destructive effect on not only our lives and our bodies at so many, every level possible, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, but on nature and on all of creation on every level and arena in this world. Creation is longing, yearning, the Bible says, and aching for the redemption that is to come in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What do I mean by mistakes? While mistakes being not violations of God's laws, so not sins, but just bad decisions on our part. You bought a home thinking that the market was strong and then you realize that only Jesus is a the, is the sure foundation and everything else crumbles. And all of a sudden you're in a financial ruin. You're like, man, what's going on? These kinds of mistakes where you took the information you had and you, and you made a decision based on that and well, it ended up being not, not a good decision and now you're really paying for it. 
And thirdly, just tragedies, just tragedies and things that frankly, we just can't fully explain. The kind of stuff that Paul describes, Apostle Paul describes as who has known the mind of the Lord. We don't know what's happening. We don't know why it's happening. We don't know why God is allowing such pain and suffering. We don't see as God sees. These are painful, hard circumstances, sometimes that we see coming and sometimes we don't see coming at all. So one of the things that will help you and I, all of us, study the Bible, study scriptures in general, but in Esther in particular, and this is what I want us to do today in chapter 3, is look for the sins, look for the mistakes, and look for the tragedies and uh, in, in, in how they complicate the story of Esther, how they complicate and in, in, in how they pain people's lives. And God puts these stories, by the way, in Scripture for a good reason, for our instruction, for our encouragement, and for our correction. Meaning there's a healthy way of looking at these things. There's a healthy way of dealing with these things that complicate and sometimes they plague our lives. There's a healthy way and a biblical way and a godly way to look at them that leads to life and not despair and death. If we don't have a good theology on these things, on the sins, on the mistakes and the tragedies that mark our lives, there's a big chance, probably 100% of a chance, and it's just a matter of a time until you will look at the Bible, you will look at your life in one of two ways. It's either through the lens of a religious pride or total despair. And if you remember, we touched on this last Sunday. I need to be a good person, right? Because otherwise God won't bless me. God won't use me. He only uses and loves those who are good and he curses and he does not use those who are bad. Well, we're all depraved to start off with. <laughs> so not much hope there. And you can see how easily we can move towards despair, especially if you're experiencing some tragedies in your life. It's so easy to despair. Or for the few that their life is going just fine, well, pride can settle in quite fast. I'm doing good. God loves me. I'm not like the other people on the other side of the ditch that, God's, that God hates because they're not doing well. So it's extremely important that we have a fuller biblical theology on the sins in our lives, on the mistakes that we make, and on the tragedies that happen in our life. And not to, and not to have to end up in one of these two ditches, pride or despair, and ultimately that we would live a life that honors God. Amen? Because a life that honors God is a, is a life that, that benefits us and everyone around us. Amen? Now, these three things that painfully mark our lives every single day, the sins that we commit, the mistakes that we make, and the tragedies that happen to us, they are everywhere in this story. This drama, the story of Esther. And what I want to do right now, uh, maybe a little bit different, is share with you and analyze eight things that we see in this story. Eight things. And some are sins, some are mistakes, and some are tragedies. And some are combinations of two or three. So here's the idea that I want to talk about, big idea number two. These things shouldn't, shouldn't be happening. These things shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be like this. And just like our world, 
just like your life, the sins that we commit and the mistakes that we make and the tragedies that happen to us shouldn't be happening. It shouldn't be happening. And we find ourselves in complicated places and we find ourselves despairing and in hopelessness. So number one, generations of God's people prior to Esther should not have continued in sin so that they get exiled. That shouldn't have never happened. So this is, this is sin. This is what sin does. So generations of God's people prior to Esther should not have continued in sin so that they get exiled. And sometimes the stuff in our life that is most painful, church, was made generations before you were born. And they have major implications in all of our lives, and it affects us in a big way. The whole reason God's people are in Persia right, is this generations prior, they were sinning against God, so God had them exiled to Babylon. Had they not sinned against the Lord, they wouldn't have been exiled to Babylon. The Jews weren't supposed to be here in the first place. They're supposed to be in Jerusalem. It was a land that was given to them. They're here because of unrepentant sin. That's why they're here. Had they not sinned, they wouldn't be here. So it is with us, isn't it? How many of us, the difficult, the hard, painful circumstances of life, our parents' sin or our grandparents' sin, our sin got us in that place, a place that we're not supposed to be in the first place. Now, do you know what the problem in the world is? It's not sin. There's always going to be an abundance of that, even in our life. It's not sin, but it's unresolved, unrepented sin at the foot of the cross through the blood of Jesus Christ's sin. That's the problem in the world. That's the problem. Number two, the death of Esther's parents was tragic. This is a tragedy. This is a tragedy. The death of Esther's parents was tragic. Now, we don't know how our parents died. We're not given that information. But anytime there's a child who loses both mother or father or vice versa, even worse, I think, through sickness, through war, through famine, whatever the case may be, it's a tragedy. It's devastating. Again, think about how many kids are losing their parents now in Israel and Gaza. Just think about that. How many parents have lost kids, are losing kids as we speak? I've got two. And I cannot imagine my kids without MRI. I I just can't. Or finding Eli on their rubble. I, I, I just can't. Like, how do I deal with that? That would be a tragedy. That would be a tragedy. Let me just say this. We are so affected by the tragedies in our life that we're paralyzed to live life. And if we don't have a robust and a healthy theology on the tragedies in our life, it can get pretty dark. It can get pretty bleak and suicidal very quickly. Very quickly. Number three. Xerxes should not have taken bad counsel. That's a mistake. Mistake that led to a lot of sins. That's a mistake or a sin. Some could say, that's fine. Put it in whatever category you want. First of all, he took bad counsel and he divorced his wife. He was a fool for doing that. He should have repented of his sin. He should have, should have not taken bad counsel and run the bachelor of Persia. That's what we said, right? And then brought in all the beautiful women to take their virginity and then pick his favorite one. That should have never happened. That's wrong. It's just wrong. Do you see how much wrong is in here? 
Let me tell you, the Bible is the most honest book that's ever been written. Side note. Number four, Mordecai should not have allowed Esther to enter the competition. Mistake, sin, I don't know. Again, this is speculation, right? We said there's a lot of speculation, but the application point is on it, right? Because that's a biblical principle. But we can speculate some of these things. Was he really a coward? I think he was a coward at the beginning. So let's just go with it, right? So Esther's probably a teenager, no mom, no dad. She's poor. Hundreds of women are going to compete. Hundreds of women are going to sleep with the king, and he lets her be one of them. Like, there's no fight here. Like, you know, here's the problem. He didn't do anything. He didn't say anything. And the funny and interesting thing is that now in chapter 3, and we just read it, he is willing to die on the hill of bowing. Like, really, dude? Like, because Haman comes along, the evil villain, right, that was just promoted, and he wants everyone to bow down to him, and Mordecai refuses to do so. And some would say, well, Haman wanted to be worshipped as a god, and obviously you, you can't do that. You can't worship someone else. Again, speculation, but this is what a lot of commentaries say. I don't think that's the case here. I don't think that was the case. In that day, politically, you would bow, right? In some Asian cultures, you still bow, right? It's a sign of respect. In the military, you salute. Someone comes across a higher-ranking official, you salute. It's a sign of respect. Even though even you may not appreciate someone, but you salute the uniform. You respect the chain of command. So Mordecai, listen, brother, if you want to die for a noble cause, make it the cause of a young woman and her purity, especially if she's your daughter, adopted daughter, right? Mordecai should have fought for Esther. Again, speculation or not, but the application point is right on the money. And this is what I want to say to you men. I'm asking us, you, to do the same thing for your daughters, for your wives, for your families, for your church, right? Love them, serve them, protect them, encourage them. Esther should have never been part of the harem. No way. Number five. Esther should not have, should, let me try that again. Esther should, not, should have not lost her virginity to a pagan Gentile. Amen? That's a sin. I'm not necessarily saying it's entirely her fault. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's wrong. I mean, we look at Daniel just a few years prior to that. He could have been killed for saying, no, I don't want to eat your food, king. But he wasn't. We call these people persecuted people. We go through that too, you know? So anyways, Xerxes was a big Xerxes. We said that, right? Uh, Mordecai shouldn't have, shouldn't have allowed that, sure. And yeah, it would have been okay for her to fight sin a little bit, you know? It, it's okay to, to wage war you know, against that. Again, speculation or not, but the application point is right on the money. How about us? We have to say no to sin. And a yes to Jesus always. Listen, things are done to us that we cannot control, but there's never a good enough reason to choose sin, to rationalize sin and react in a sinful way. Never. No matter what's done to you, no matter what's done to me. And what we can always control is to honor God in whatever situation you find yourself in. You can control, you can control choosing holiness. And that's what we ought to do. Are we gonna are we gonna pay for it for choosing holiness? One hundred percent. You're always gonna pay for cho for choosing holiness, but that's when everybody gets to see, yourself included, what your faith is about, <laughs> and how much of a Christian we really are. We can we can we can talk the big game, but can we walk it? 
Number six, after Mordecai saved the king's life, he should have never been overlooked. That's a mistake. Again, we actually didn't get a chance to go over this last Sunday from chapter two, the last few verses, but we also learned from verse 19, chapter two, uh, verse 19 specifically, and a lot, of, um, a lot of commentaries in history says this, that Mordecai held some type of, of an official position within the Persian government, right? And verse 19 alludes to that in chapter two. And he hears about a plot against King Xerxes, and he decides to tell Esther to tell the king. So he pretty much saves the king's life, and he gets no recognition for this whatsoever. He should have been honored. He should have been respected, not neglected. That should not have happened. That was a huge mistake or sin. Two more. Number seven. Haman should have never been born. Sin that turned into tragedy. Haman should have never been born. Now, theologically, the book of Esther is subtle. It's quiet, but it whispers a lot of truth. Earlier in the book, we learned that Mordecai was a descendant of someone named, you guys remember? King Saul, the first king of the Jews, right? Um, and here we learn that Haman is a descendant of Agog or Agog. Well, the Jews would have read this and said, well, that's way back in the Old Testament. Generations prior, the Agagites kept trying to destroy and annihilate God's people. That's exactly what we see happening even today in Israel, by the way. It's the same spirit of Hamas, same spirit of uh, Agog. They were trying to do the same thing that Haman, Hitler's, and Hamas do. And so God told King Saul, destroy all the Agagites, kill them all, don't take any of their plunder, what Saul did was disobey the Lord. He didn't kill them all. He let the Agagite king live. And rather than rejecting all of the wealth, what did he do? He took it to make himself rich because even God's people sometimes grievously can act like King Xerxes. It's all about the money, the power, the comfort, and the control. It's not about God's glory and the good of others. So Mordecai's, uh, let's say, I don't know, great, 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 great grandfather didn't kill Haman's great-great-great-great-grandfather like the Lord said. So now Haman's going to try to kill Mordecai and, the, and, all of, and all the Jews. Haman should have never been born. And number eight, Xerxes should not have given his signet ring. This is a mistake that could have turned into a tragedy. He, should have, he, shouldn't, he shouldn't have given the evil villain, Haman, the power of attorney, unlimited authority. I mean, acts as the nuclear button, proverbially speaking, without checking the facts, without doing his homework. Like, dude, you can just kind of give away your power just like that. Look into it. So what happened is that Haman wants to annihilate all of God's people. It's exactly what's happening today in the world. It's been happening for thousands of years. And King Xerxes just gave away all the authority and the power of the king of this evil villain. And what he wants to do is satanic. It's demonic. God brings life. Satan's, Satan takes life away. He brings death. This is evil, unvarnished, evil unmasked through a man who's unrepentant, and that's all that it takes sometimes. And we read in verse 13, we, we read verse 13, we kind of paused for a second there, that in one day, one day, they are to annihilate women and babies and everyone who was Jewish, everyone who's, who's, who's Jewish. King Xerxes was the largest, had the largest army, by the way, in the history of the world. Herodotus, the Greek historian, tells us that 
It was at least a few hundred thousand soldiers or maybe even the millions. That's why they could do it in just one day. That's why, because they had a humongous army. And the decree comes to the commanders and generals, grab your weapons, go and fight babies, go find little girls, go find grandmas and grandpas, pregnant women, and slaughter them all. We've seen that a week ago. The same spirit. Church, people are not good by nature. (laughs) None of us are. People are not morally upright and devout by nature. This is the human heart untethered and unleashed from the restraining grace of our God. Now, all of these eight things that we listed, and trust me, we could have, we could have listed 20. They are all wrong. It's not supposed to be this way. It's not. God doesn't show up. God doesn't send a prophet in the book of Esther. God doesn't speak from heaven. God doesn't do a miracle. There's no burning bush. There's no evidence that God, in a way, shows up, speaks, or acts. So then my question, because I said all of that to ask you this question, how do we interpret all of this data? What do we do with all these sins, a pile of sins, a lot of mistakes, and a lot of tragedies? What do we do with all of that? What do we do? Well, let me ask you this question, and this is actually our third big point. What sins, tragedies, and mistakes are ruling your life and my life? Your life has been or will be or is presently in the place of the story of Esther. It is or it was or it will be. It's dark. The clouds have rolled in. The fog is thick. God can be seen. Is there a way out? And you're asking yourself, is there hope? in my situation. I mean, some of us revisit our life quite often. You do it in your mind and you're obsessing over the details. I remember this sin that I committed 10 years ago. Oh, I remember that. Oh, I remember it. Or this was a sin that they committed against me and I just can't let it go because it affects me in such a deep way. This goes all the way back to my parents maybe. This goes all the way back to my grandparents and their sin is like a curse in my life. A lot of people are there. Or... Oh, remember that mistake that I made five years ago? Remember? I thought it was a good idea, but that was a really bad idea and it ruined my life and it's just, it's still with me. Or this is such a tragedy and it hurts so much and I don't know how to deal with it and I'm in it right now. I saw a quick interview with a civilian, I think two days after the war war broke, broke out, a man that couldn't get back into Gaza to his family. He worked in some other country. He was just on his phone with his brother, and apparently he just got the news that his five-year-old son had just died under some rubble. And two of his other kids were taking shelter at a school, And his wife had been in Egypt for some time for some medical reasons, and he was stuck, and he couldn't get back to his family. He couldn't even get to his son's burial. What a tragedy. And most people hear something like that, and their immediate reaction is, why would you do something like that, God? Why would you allow something like that, God? And we get angry at God. We do because our theology is flaky and in suffering, you really get to see it for what it is. 
See, we, 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 we have tragedy in our life. We experience suffering in our life because we all have fallen short of the glory of God and we all have rebelled against him. And I'm not necessarily speaking about a particular sin that you have committed, you know, but sin in general, the sin of the world, ours included, we have suffering because we have sin and we have tragedy because we have sin. And when we suffer, we never dare get angry at the sin in our life or the sin in the world. We, no, we, we, we don't do that. But our knee-jerk reaction is to blame God and get angry with him. Even in our suffering, you see our depravity in full display. What I'm not saying, what I'm not saying, please hear me, what I'm not saying is that we shouldn't dare ask questions when we go through tragedy. No, no, no. Ask as many as you, as you want. You read through the Psalms and you, and you see the, the, you know, the brokenness of men and how, how many questions they ask and they're, they're almost like a heated conversation between them and God, right? Please do so in the presence of God in prayer. I, or I'm, I'm not saying that we shouldn't grieve either. No, please grieve when you go through tragedy, but there's a, there's a healthy way in which we grieve. Tragedy is devastating. And for some of us in some seasons, it feels like all the events in our life, they're, they're overtaking us. It's like our, our life is a huge river with a strong current toward death and we're just in it being drugged along. The decisions are made, the circumstances are set, and our fate is sealed. It feels like that, doesn't it? And then you, you have to deal with all of that craziness, all the craziness that's going on in your mind. And all the questions, you shouldn't have slept with him. That's when everything started. You shouldn't have married her. That's when everything started. Now you're paying for it. You shouldn't have gotten married. You shouldn't have, you should have finished college. You shouldn't have, you know, uh, you, you shouldn't have started drinking that stuff because that's, that's when everything went down the drain, right? All the what if questions, all the how come questions and all the where is God questions, they inundate us. They flood our minds. And this is where people's lives in the Bible need to be interpreted, as our lives need to be interpreted also, through a biblical and a godly worldview. Not one that can further sink us into despair and death and darkness. Amen? So atheists would come to this text, Esther, and to maybe circumstances in our life and say, see, there's no God. Huh, I told you. He doesn't show up. He doesn't act. He doesn't speak. If there's a God, wouldn't he show up or do anything? Huh? He doesn't say or do anything in the whole book of Esther. There's no evidence. There's no God. Along would come the deists, or like the sociologist Christian Smith calls it, the moralistic therapeutic deism. And this is what they say. There is a God, yes, but he lives far away, and he doesn't want to get involved in your business or my business. It's too messy. It's very messy and it's difficult and complicated, so you're on your own, good luck. He wants you to do well, though. So just go out there and, you know. He left us a few therapists to give us some good ideas on how to pick up the mess that we've made, which is great, <laughs> but he's not coming down. He's not getting involved and he's not going to do anything miraculous. He's not going to step in. He's not going to speak or act. You're on your own. By the way, we would never say that we're deists, but so many times we act like one, don't we? I'll just leave that thought there. Determinists would come along and say, no, this is all part of God's sovereign plan. 
And this is what he wants. He wants, he's okay with suffering and tragedy. He's a sovereign God, therefore everything that happens is his plan, even murder and tragedy. By the way, do you know that this is actually hard Islam and at the same time hard and extreme Calvinism? Is it, is, this is a caricature of Calvinism, for sure. It's, it's, it's hard and extreme Calvinism. God is sovereign, yes, absolutely. And we believe that he's sovereign because the Bible said he's sovereign. And, and I myself preach on this quite often because I love this. I love that my God is sovereign and in control of everything. But people are so extreme with this. And it's so lopsided in, their, in the people's theology that they'll even call into question the goodness of God. Because now the sovereignty of God kind of supersedes the goodness of God. And, you know, that's just it. Church, did you know that not everything that happens is God's will? If I walk out of this place and I want to kill a person and I do it, that wasn't God's will. That's not what God wanted, right? But I guess because of pride, because people are just not articulate enough, I don't know, they'll say things like, well, everything happens for a reason. No, no. Some things are just wrong. And we need to call it like it is. Now, now here's the biblical truth. And here's how we should make sense of all the tragedies that happen to us. God can use and will use all these tragedies for his glory and for our good ultimately. Yes, yes, absolutely. But they are not good things and they are not what God desires. Some things are just evil and they should never happen. But God is sovereign enough, if I can see that sovereign is enough anyways, to somehow use them and work them out for his glory and for our good if we are in Christ. Amen. Let me point your heart to this amazing promise, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Now notice that it doesn't say that all things that we experience in life are good. It doesn't say that. It says that all things work together for good. Huge difference. And by the way, that's not for all people either, but only for those that are truly in Christ, those that love God. Now, God is light and in him there's no darkness at all. God is good. He is not evil. God's not in heaven going, let's see how many evil men who think they're God can I hand teenage girls to. He doesn't do that, right? That's not the heart of God the Father. People will say very foolish things. Well, everything is according to God's plan. No, there are rebels who are fighting against God's redemptive plan and sinners who are sinning against God's plan. We see this all throughout the Bible and we see it even today in our life too. There are Haman's today as well, right? We are responsible for the mess and evil choices we make. Everyone who sins is responsible for their sin, but make no mistake, church. God is sovereign and loving to work out all the tragedies for something good in the end. If we are in Christ, that's God's amazing promise for us. Amen. Furthermore, when it comes to our mistakes, how should we look at our mistakes then? Well, we already kind of talked about it last Sunday, didn't we? Just like Esther God can get you through the trouble you've gotten yourself into and all the mistakes you've made. God's not to blame for some of the decisions that Mordecai, Xerxes, and perhaps even Esther have made. He's not to blame for those. They've made some decisions and have Esther in a very risky situation. But listen, God gets her through it. God gets her through it. God doesn't get her out of it. God doesn't get her around it. 
God works through his invisible hand of providence to get her through it. So let me encourage you with this. That's exactly what he's doing in your life. Even if you've made decisions and others have made decisions that got you in a very risky situation, difficult position, God will, by his providential hand, get you through it. He is faithful. Amen? Now, let me ask you this question. We talked about how we should not look at the tragedies that complicate, or how we should look at the tragedies that complicate our life. At least we touched, we scratched the surface, by the way. And then our mistakes. But how about our sin? Because there's a pile of it. Not sure if you picked up on this, but do you know when Haman's decree to murder God's people was sent forth? We read it. Esther chapter 3 tells us in verse 7 and 13. And we can miss it easily because the calendar was a little bit different, the way the, the, way, um, the author uh, articulated it. Haman's decree for the murder of God's people is sent forth on the eve of Passover. Hmm. The 13th day of the first month was the day before Passover. So the last big point that we want to make is the Passover lamb. The Passover lamb. Now this goes all the way back to Exodus 12. Different nation. It's not Persia. It's Egypt. Different ruler, not Xerxes, but Pharaoh. But the same thing that is, there's one who was worshipped like a god, ruling over God's people and abusing God's people. And the problem is that God's people are in exile away from home on both accounts. And it's because of their sin, right? And the discipline of a holy and a righteous God is on them because God is so committed to your highest and best that he's willing to even allow suffering in your life to get you there. That's how much you're loved by God. And so they need to deal with their sin so that they could be delivered from their slavery. And so the decree is given that death is coming to every home with one exception, those homes that acknowledge their sin and repent of it, basically. It's literally what Passover means. God's wrath passes over your house. God's wrath passes over you because of a sacrifice that was made in your place and in their place. And they take, based on God's commands, beginning in Exodus 12, a lamb without spot or blemish, pointing, of course, toward or showing sinlessness. They confess their sins, so there's imputation or reckoning, so that their sins go to the animal, and now it becomes a substitute. And then they take the animal and they slaughter it, so that the animal dies and the blood is shed, because the wages of sin is what? Death, and the animal dies as the substitute. And then in faith, as a demonstration of their faith, they take the blood of the animal and they cover the doorpost to their homes, showing outwardly and publicly, unlike Mordecai and Esther who have a private faith, at least in my opinion, this is a public faith that we worship the God of the Bible, that we're sinners, that we deserve death and that we deserve the wrath of God. But there is a substitute that has shed its blood, paid its life without spot or blemish, a lamb for us. And then that night, death comes through the nation and it brings death to the firstborn son in every home with one exception. Like we said, those homes who are literally covered by the blood of the lamb in faith and repentance. And how interesting. The decree from Haman is on the eve of Passover. And by the way, and again, this is all leaning and pointing to Jesus all day long. If you're wondering, man, this is, yeah, all the signs point to Jesus. The whole Bible's one story with one hero. Jesus steps onto the scene and comes and lives among us. 
Now Jesus is a king seated on a throne like Xerxes, but infinitely bigger and better. And he does something that Xerxes never does. He gets off of his throne and he comes into human history and he humbles himself to a death on a cross being crucified. And that's because he loves his people. That's because he wants to serve his people. That's because he created his people and he knows his people. And God becomes a man. And John, Jesus' cousin, looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God that took the sin of the world. And this is nothing but fulfillment of Passover. This is what Paul, Apostle Paul, says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Jesus is our Passover church. And what happens is Jesus comes, our great king, infinitely greater than Xerxes, with an infinitely greater kingdom, the kingdom of God. And the problem is that like Mordecai to Haman, we don't bow down to him, and he doesn't act like Haman either. He doesn't get proud or arrogant. He doesn't have angry, vengeful wrath against us. He loves us and he serves us. And like the two men that we read in, at the end of chapter two, right, we plot the king's murder ourselves. We conspire to murder the king of kings. And unlike Xerxes, he doesn't have us crucified. He allows us to crucify him for our sin. And our humble, loving, gracious servant king who comes to save his people looks people in the eye who have plotted his demise and says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. You wonder what God is going to do with your pile of sin? Well, he dealt with it in Christ. He doesn't just manage it. I don't know about this one. This one, maybe. Not this one. He doesn't sweep it under the rug either. He deals with it, with his own life. He was... The Passover lamb that took the sin of the world and he died in our place as the substitute. And Jesus not only solves the problem of sin, but in Jesus, God works out all of our mistakes, church. And in Jesus, God takes the worst tragedy and makes it into the greatest glory. We have the most amazing Savior. We have the most amazing Lord. If you have never responded to the gospel, I plead with you that you would. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.